I took the next day off and we spent the day together visiting the Art Institute, digging out old photos from my closet, visiting supermarket where Auma decided that Americans were friendly and overweight. She was stubborn sometimes, sometimes impish, sometimes burdened with the weight of the world, but always asserting a self-reliance that I recognized as I learned that it's a response, my own response to uncertainty. We didn't speak much about our father, though it was as if our conversation stopped whenever we threatened to skirt his memory. It was only that night, after dinner, and after a long walk along the lake's crumbling break wall, that we both sensed we couldn't go any further until we opened up the subject. And so I made us some tea, and Auma began to tell me about the old man, at least what she could remember. I can't say I really knew him, Barak. Maybe nobody did. Not really. His life was so scattered, people only knew scraps and pieces. Even his own children. I was scared of him, you know? He was already away when I was born. He was in Hawaii with your mom and then at Harvard. When he came back to Kenya, our oldest brother Roy and I were small children. We had lived with our mom in the country, in Alego, up until then. I was too young to remember much about him coming. I was four, but Roy was six. So maybe he can tell you more about what happened. I just remember that he came back with an American woman named Ruth, and that he took us from our mother to go live with them in Nairobi. I remember that this woman Ruth was the first white person I had ever been near. And that, suddenly, she was supposed to be my new mother. I don't know exactly why we didn't stay with my own mother. 
But I guess here in Kenya, men get to keep children in a divorce if they want them. That is, I asked my mom about this, but it's difficult for her to talk. She only says that the old man's new wife refused to live with another wife. And so my mom thought us children would be better off living with the old man because he was rich. In those first years, he was doing really well. He was working with an American oil company, Shell, I think. And it was only a few years after independence. He was well connected with all the top government people. He had gone to school with many of them. The vice president, ministers, they would all come to the house sometimes and drink with him while talking about politics. He had a big house and a big car and everybody was impressed with him because he was so young but he already had so much education from abroad and he had an American wife which was still rare although later when he was still married to Ruth he could go out sometimes with my real mom as if he had to show people that he could also have this beautiful African woman whenever he chose. I didn't think much about this until later. The way our lives were divided into two because I was so young. I think it was harder on Roy because he was old enough to remember what it had been like in Alego, living in the village with our mom and our people. Then things began to change when Ruth gave birth to Mark and David and her attention shifted to them. The old man left the American company to work in the government for the Ministry of Tourism. He might have had political ambitions and at first he was doing well in government. But by 1966 or 67, the divisions in Kenya had become more serious. President Kenyatta came from the largest tribe, the Kikuyus. The second largest tribe, the Luos, began to complain that Kikuyus were getting all the best jobs. The government 
was full of intrigue. The vice president, Odinga, was a Luo, and he said the government was becoming corrupt. That instead of serving those who had fought for independence, Kenyan politicians had taken the place of white colonialists, buying up businesses and land that should have been distributed to the people. Odinga started his own party but was placed under house arrest as a communist. Another popular Luo minister, Tom Mboya, was killed by a Kikuyu gunman. Luos began to protest in the streets and the government police cracked down hard. People were killed. All this created more suspicion between the two largest tribes. Most of the old man's friends just kept quiet and learned to live with the situation. But the old man began to speak up. He would tell people that tribalism was going to ruin the country and that unqualified men were taking the best jobs. His friends tried to warn him about speaking such things in public, but he didn't care. He always thought he knew what was best. When he was passed up for a promotion, he complained loudly, How? How can you be my senior? He would say to one of the ministers, and yet I am teaching you how to do your job properly. So word got back to Kenyatta and the old man was called in to see the president. According to stories, Kenyatta said to the old man, but because he could not keep his mouth shut, he, Barack Obama Sr., would not work again until he had no shoes on his feet. Dreams from my father by Barack Hussein Obama. And here we see Barack and his half-sister Auma Obama finally broaching the subject of the old man, their dad who by that time had already died. 
On the last day of his visit, he took me to lunch. Here is many years later after Auma traveled to Germany and started her own life away from her family back in Kenya. Remember, she left without telling her father. She says, it was only in Germany that I began to let go of some of the anger I felt towards him. The last time I saw him, he was on a business trip representing Kenya at an international conference in Europe. I was apprehensive because we hadn't spoken for so long. But when he arrived in Germany, he seemed relaxed, almost peaceful. We had a really good time. When he was being completely unreasonable, he could be so charming. He took with me, he took me with him to London and we stayed in a fancy hotel where he introduced me to all his friends at a British club. He was pulling out chairs for me and making a great fuss, telling all his friends how proud he was of me. On the last day of his visit, he took me out to lunch and we talked about the future. He asked me if I needed money and I insisted that I take and he insisted that I take something. He told me that once I returned to Kenya, he would find me a proper husband. It was touching, you know, what he was trying to do as if he could make up for all the lost time. By then, he had just fathered another son, George, with a young woman he was living with. And so I told him, Roy and myself were already adults. We have our own ways, our own memories of what happened between all of us which is hard to undo but with George the baby he's a clean slate you have a chance to really do right by him he just nodded as if as if oh, for some time Auma had been staring at our father's photograph, soft focused in the dim light. Now she stood up and went to the window, her back turned to me. She was clutching herself, her hands inching over her hunched shoulders. She began to shake violently. 
as I came up behind her and put my arms around her and she wept, sorrow washing through her in slow, deep waves. Do you see, Barak? I was just starting to know him. I was just getting to the point where, where he might have explained himself. Sometimes I think he might have really turned the corner, found some inner peace. When he died, I felt so, so cheated, as cheated as you must have felt. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Sauti Akilini Voice of the Mind Home Home of the next generation. Stay tuned. Don't touch that dial. Mm, mm, mm. Oh yeah.